Oh, would you please join me in standing out of adoration for God's word, which delivers unto us his good news of salvation. And turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49 is where we will be this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you today, it's always useful to have one open and in front of you as we examine God's word together. So I would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you. And you can turn to page 609 for this morning's text. Uh, If you weren't with us last week, we pressed something of a pause button on our ongoing expositions through Luke's Gospel for the four months of Advent this December as we are looking at what are commonly called the four servant songs in Isaiah's prophecy. These prophetic poems is really what they are. Prophetic passages about the coming Messiah and the Redeemer of God's people. And this morning, the one we want to look at is in chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. Uh, We said last week that Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. That's a fair summary of the entire book of Isaiah. And I think what we'll find this morning, it's also a fair summary of the second servant song. And so as I read the text, have this key question in your mind. Who is the servant? That's the question you want to ask. Who is the servant that is speaking, and see if you might find some clues in the text that help you lead to a deeper understanding. So let me read the passage for us, and then I want to pray briefly that God would bless our study of His Word, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God gives to us His good news in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, and those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. 
and I will make all my mountains a road, and all my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning as a people who are needy, many of us weak, many of us weary. And so we look to you for comfort. We look to you for compassion. We look to you to tell us of your Son, Jesus Christ, the light of the world who has brought life unto men. So shine the light in our midst this morning. Bring the life of Christ into our hearts that you might be glorified. Help us to hear your word with faith and trust. For me to preach with boldness, with clarity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever played the game of Pictionary, you know that classic game where you have to guess a key word of a figure or an event by one of your team members sketching out or drawing something on a picture pad, you know that if you have a good artist on your team, what they would tend to do is draw very quickly something of an outline of the image, of the event that you're supposed to guess, the person you're supposed to mention, or the thing that is in mind. And as time goes on, as many seconds are allowed, soon that outline starts getting filled in with more detail, with more specific color. And maybe you get all the way to the end and it's fully present for each watching eye and then suddenly you realize what actually was in view. It's quite clear that yes, that's what we were supposed to guess or that's the event that we were supposed to mention. And something like that is actually happening in the book of Isaiah. Uh, What is happening in these servant songs is that Yahweh, through his servant, this prophet Isaiah, is taking the Holy Spirit's word and, as it were, sketching out a picture of God's coming servant. And with each passing servant song, we're getting more color, we're getting more detail, we're getting more specifics about who this coming servant Savior is. And we have clear echoes and clear Markers in each servant song about who it is. And so we need to always ask the question with these servant songs, well, who is it? As I said, who is the servant of whom Isaiah speaks in this passage? And I told you last week, if you weren't with us, that these servant songs of Isaiah, the identity of the servant, has created no small amount of controversy in biblical circles. One commentator said, endless controversy has marked the identity of this servant in Isaiah. And you might at first glance in this passage say, well, we have finally settled the endless controversy that has plagued the commentators for decades, if not centuries, because we get a name, don't we? In verse three, if you look down again at verse three, directly named is this servant. What's the name? Israel. So it's Israel, right? This national corporate identity, it's Israel. Well, I want to say not so fast. Did you notice verse five? He's going to redeem Israel. And it sounds rather silly when you think about it, especially in context of Isaiah. If you scan your eyes back up to verse 1 of chapter 48, uh, we're told there that Isaiah 
I'm sorry, Isaiah is telling us that Israel has made a mockery of their mission as God's covenant people in the world, not walking in truth and righteousness. And because of their unrepentance and idolatry, what has God done? He's exiled them into Babylon. So this sinful, judged, exiled people are actually supposed to be their very rescuers and redeemer? It doesn't really make sense. And so I think what we're meant to see is that what is in view here is a true and greater Israel is promised. A solitary figure, a servant is on the way who is also rightly called Israel. And this person is going to redeem Israel. And so I could prove that for you, I think, biblically in a couple of different ways. First, we could go on something of a long-winded a biblical theological examination of the New Testament to show how the New Testament authors understood Jesus Christ to be the true and greater Israel. You know, we could turn to places like Matthew chapter 2, written to a Jewish audience to display that Christ is indeed the Messiah and show how clearly in Matthew's mind Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel as he applies a prophecy from Hosea about Israel to Jesus saying that this is God's Son. But I think we can do it more easily if you flip over to Luke chapter 2. We looked at this passage almost exactly 12 months ago in our study of Luke's gospel. Direct quotations of the Old Testament are numerous in the New Testament, and they're actually quite helpful when we understand what they are referring to. So if you get to the end of Luke chapter 2, what you would see is the baby Jesus comes to be presented in the temple. And if you know the story, there's this old man, Simeon, He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, we're told. And he's full of the Spirit, and he sees the baby King Jesus. He takes him up into his arms. And look what he says about the baby King Jesus in verse 32. Luke chapter 2, verse 32. This baby is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, which is a direct quote of Isaiah 49.6. And for glory to your people, Israel which is a clear reference to Isaiah 49.3. So Jesus Christ, we can rightly say, is the perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's servant song here in chapter 49. He is the true and better Israel who comes to rescue sinful, broken, and fallen Israel. And we're going to see that even as the passage continues this morning. So the theme we have in Isaiah 49 in this second servant song is God's servant for the nations. Last week we said the first servant song was about God's servant for the burdened. Uh, This servant who's going to bring justice to the ends of the earth. And what we see in this passage is God promises this servant is not just a just king. He's going to be a worldwide savior. He's not the lord of only one locale. The king of only one country. The redeemer of only one realm. He is the servant for the nations. The Lord for all peoples, including places like McKinney, Texas. He is God's servant for the nations. And so, what we have before us, you may have noticed this as we read the passage, it's something of a conversation between the servant and Yahweh. That's why the great Puritan Thomas Goodwin called this passage an elegant dialogue between the father and his son. Because what you'll see if you just look down again, verses 1 through 6, is the servant speaking. Verses 7 through 12 is Yahweh speaking. And then in verse 13, God's people are addressed. And so we're just going to walk through the passage under those simple three sections. We first want to see the servant's calling. Secondly, the Lord's covenant. 
And then thirdly, the people's comfort. But again, we want to know something about what's going on in Isaiah at this moment. Uh, What you need to know is previous chapters have been on this continual focus related to Babylon. Chapter 47 finds this long-sustained oracle of judgment is coming on the nation of Babylon. So chapter 48, the page turns, and Isaiah is prophetically warning God's people, it's time to get out of Babylon. Look at verse 20 of chapter 48. Isaiah says, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a sound of joy, and proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So the idea here is redemption. And as we turn the page to chapter 49, we're thinking about this question. How is God going to redeem his servant Jacob? Or maybe better said, who is going to do that work of redemption? So we want to listen first to the servant's calling. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49. Servant says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So, students, if you've ever had your parents or maybe a teacher or a coach say, Hey, listen up! Well, this is basically what the servant is doing here to the ends of the earth. Every nook and cranny, every country, every plain, every hill, every valley, every person, listen to me. And what he's going to end up doing in the next few verses is give us something of a spiritual autobiography. And he's first going to mention his preparation. Notice as verse 1 continues, The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. So what you want to see here is that the suffering servant, this Savior, is going to come from natural means. He's going to be born of a woman. But he has a supernatural calling. Yahweh himself calling him from the very womb, forming him and fitting him for a particular mission. And that supernatural mission It needs supernatural weapons. Look at verse 2. The servant says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver he hid me away. So kids, think about these words, sword and arrow. Uh, What images come to mind when you think of those weapons? You know, probably some pictures of a battle, or fighting, or a war. These are the tools that Yahweh has given his servant to go about his mission of bringing salvation to all peoples. And what's interesting here in verse 2 is this prophetic announcement that the servant's going to be hid for a time. Do you see that? And we know that's true, don't we, of the Lord Jesus' ministry. For 30 years, he was hidden from plain view, wasn't he? Quietly growing, quietly maturing. And only for the last three years of his life does he burst onto the scene. Does he cause something of a ruckus in Israel? And how does he do it? Well, he does it by preaching. Uh, Students, do you remember when Jesus burst onto the scene in Luke's gospel we looked at so many months ago, what he is normally found doing? Speaking the truth of the kingdom. That's why Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom, for that's why I have been sent. His mission of salvation begins with a mission to preach the good news of salvation. And so think again of these weapons. Uh, The preaching of Christ is a sword that pierces the heart of those that are nearby. The preaching of Christ is an arrow that strikes the consciences of those who are far off. 
It's going to be through speaking that he's going to go about his mission. Then you notice again, verse 3, we find clearly his named identity is Israel in whom God will be glorified, where national Israel has fallen short. This solitary servant figure named Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to obey perfectly everywhere where they failed, that he might bring restoration and redemption uh, to the world. And so you think that in light of all of this preparation, all of these clear declarations from Yahweh about his identity and his purpose, that he might be strengthened and courageous in the midst of such ministry. And while that's certainly true of Jesus Christ, he moves now in this autobiography from his preparation to his frustration. Look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You could never accuse God's servant of being lazy. He labored. He was spent for sinners. And you know this is true in the life of Jesus' ministry, don't you? He went to his hometown and they took him off to a cliffside wanting to murder him because of whom he claimed to be. The national people of Israel, they rejected him. The leaders, they despised him and destroyed him. Even his own 12 disciples. What did they do? They deserted him. And one of them famously denied him. He cries out at the cross. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From any worldly perspective, when Jesus is there hanging at the cross of Calvary, his, his missionary enterprise, his purpose for which he came, seemed an abject failure, didn't it? So he speaks frustration. But notice it doesn't exterminate his faith. Because you see how verse 4 continues? Yet... Surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And we have truth of this in the New Testament where Jesus Christ entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, Peter says. And his resurrection was his vindication, for death had no wages he couldn't pay. Satan had no claim on Christ that he could keep. Vindication, recompense awaited with God. And so what you see here in verse 4 is something of a, a pattern in Jesus Christ. I think that's worthy for us to emulate and even imitate. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're in the midst of a frustrating period of life. It's spiritually difficult. You feel that you are working. You feel that you are laboring. You feel that you are being spent. And there's no fruit from all of your toil. And Satan wants to be on your shoulder basically telling you to give up. But Christ says, yet I will hope. Yet I still have faith in my God. And so it's why one commentator I read this week somewhat movingly said, Isaiah foresaw a servant with a real human nature, tested like we are and proving himself to be the author and perfecter of the way of faith, a real personal faith that can still say, my God, when nothing any longer seems worthwhile. So sometimes the greatest remedy to our spiritual struggles is to recall God's word, is to remember God's promises, is to reassure ourselves of what he has told us. And that's what the servant does. Notice as verse 5 continues, he remembers that the Lord has formed him and called him to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. He remembers that he is honored in the eyes of the Lord, that my God has become my strength. You know, if you're a member here at Redeemer, I hope that you are increasingly getting to know the congregation to such an extent that you know who's struggling in our life together. You know who is 
frustrated spiritually. You know who needs the encouragement of God's word and his promises. So I wonder, uh, do you know someone like that? That you might be able to encourage this week, reminding them that in Christ they are honored. In Christ they have the full strength of the Spirit, that they might persevere in their calling. And it's fascinating, I think, to me, what you get here is this massive mission. Go redeem Jacob. Go restore Israel. And Yahweh says it's not enough. It's not grand enough. It's not great enough. It's not big enough. It's not beautiful enough. Something greater is in store. Look at verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So Yahweh says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. My God's servant is nothing less than the servant of the nations. His mission is not located among one people. His mission is located among all peoples. And this is the servant's calling. In the many years that I spent in seminary, there was always a fair amount of complaining that was going on with the student body uh, towards professors, largely due to the amount of reading uh, that we had to do. You know, over the course of the semester, thousands of pages would need to be read, not not by itself, but you had all these other papers that were due, memorization that had to happen, tests that had to be taken. And so it seemed like inevitably every semester you'd hear one student say something to the effect of, to a professor, it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant. And then one of my favorite professors once just kind of quipped back and said, well, yeah, but if you're thirsty, you never complain about water from a fire hydrant. And what you get now as we move from the servant's calling to the Lord's covenant in verses 7 through 12 is something of a fire hydrant of spiritual wonder. Because it's so expansive and so full, we don't even get to dive into it deeply. It's like we're just going to skim off the surface of it as you would skip a rock off of a lake. But what you need to understand is that for people who need saving, like us, we would not complain at all of these images that God is now going to heap up for our attention about the nature of this mission of salvation. And this, this section has two simple parts. In verse 7 and 8, we find, thus says the Lord. So first, this saying is about worldwide exaltation. Notice what he says in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. It's like he's speaking into the servant's frustration in this moment to remind him that the divine pattern of salvation is humiliation, then exaltation. And, and what he's clearly telling us is that governments may mock this servant, but one day they will bow before his majesty. That kings may scorn this servant, but one day they will fall before his splendor. That rulers may hate this servant, but one day they will crumble before his holiness. So there is something of an implicit warning here in this, this, this truth and even this promise about worldwide exaltation. It's the warning that you can stand against God's servant, Jesus Christ, today. 
But what you must know is that there is a time coming when you will bow before Him. And it will then be too late. For that bowing will be a bowing in, in face of His judgment. But you can bow before Him now with faith and repentance and find Jesus returning and you will stand with Him in life everlasting in fullness of eternal rest and righteousness. This is the worldwide exaltation that he promises to us and to his servant. And then secondly, you have in verses 8 through 12, this kind of heaping, helping of images about the worldwide restoration that's on the way. And you can be certain about this worldwide restoration because of what he tells us. Notice in verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. So if you were with us last week, you heard almost that exact same language of, of God keeping his servant and making his servant a covenant for the people in Isaiah 42, verse 6. And we said last week, there's this central reality in our understanding of Jesus Christ, God's servant Savior, that we need to see him as the covenant. He's not just the one in whom the covenant is fulfilled. He is the covenant itself. So kids, ask this question. You know, you can talk about it later on with your parents. Now, what is a covenant? The Bible uses this word all the time. It's central to our understanding of Jesus. What is a covenant? Well, here's what we want to say. It's a solemn, that means an important, a relationship that comes with conditions. And when there's obedience, there's blessing. And when there's disobedience, there's cursing. But maybe even locate the question more specifically. How is it that a person can be a covenant? We often think of covenants as just documents that establish a relationship. How is a person, a servant, a savior, a lord, the covenant himself? I think the simple way that you want to think about it is that when you find this person in whom all of the covenant promises and demands are fulfilled, when he can deliver its decrees and its promises, he can assure its judgments even. Now what you have found then is the personification of the covenant. And so in our tradition as we talk about the covenant of grace, think about how this works out across redemptive history with Jesus Christ. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant because he's the true seed of Abraham. He fulfills the Mosaic covenant because he's the perfect law keeper. He fulfills the Davidic covenant because he's the true son of David. He inaugurates and establishes and assures the new covenant because it's in his blood that we find that covenant forgiveness. It's by his spirit that his law is written on our hearts. Jesus Christ is nothing less than the personification and the perfection of God's covenant promises. And because of that, we get all of these images, notice in verses 8 through 12, about the kind of restoration and salvation that is on the way. It's going to be at the end of verse 8, a kind of restoration that establishes the land, that apportions desolate heritage. Skip down to verse 10. It quenches the hunger and the thirst of those who come. It protects them from scorching wind and sun. He has pity on them and leads them to green pastures full of cool water. Verse 11, he makes all the mountains low and raises up all the highways so that his people might be brought home. It's this kind of scene of a new exodus if you understand what happened when Israel departed out of Egypt. It's going to happen again in this servant, Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, look at verse 9. He's going to say to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. When Christ is preached, he's saying, come out. And I wonder if you hear him saying, 
come out this morning. Come out and come to me, and I will smash the chains of sin that have bound you to death. He's saying, appear, and by that, look to the light. Are you seeing his light running from the darkness, finding Christ, remove the scales of sin that have blinded you to who he is, that you might know life is found in him, in him alone. So he's crying out, come out and appear, for I am the Savior, the Savior of the nations, for notice verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and these from the land of Syene. People are going to come from everywhere because of my salvation. This is God's Savior. This is God's servant for the nations. If you were an American soldier, especially in Europe on May 8th, 1945, you would have woken up and looked at that morning's edition of the Stars and Stripes and found this one-word headline in bold, massive print saying, Victory. Because it was what's now universally known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Hitler's Nazi Germany was finally vanquished. All of his captives have finally been liberated. And so on that day throughout Western society, cities, villages, towns, broke out into these like spontaneous parties of singing and shouting. And earlier this week, I, I read a, the account of a British war correspondent who's talking about just VE Day and what it entailed for him. And he said, it's all come here and we're all going nuts. And what I want you to know is that kind of shouting, crazy celebration over victory is but a peep in light of verse 13 in Isaiah. For notice the people's comfort. God commands, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. Worldwide salvation is a reason for worldwide celebration. As the mountains, the earth, the heavens join in this salvation song that has come to the ends of the earth. And strikingly, these verbs, these commands, sing and exult. Only in God's hymn book, the book of Psalms, do those two commands show up with more frequency than in the book of Isaiah. And here's why it's interesting to me. It seems, therefore, we can say, a prophetic ministry heralding God's servant Savior and his worldwide salvation will always cause his people to erupt in joy. That's the kind of preaching we need, that you erupt in rejoicing. You join with the song of creation because you can't contain your delight. And why even, we might ask, are they meant to rejoice in this way? When was the last time that you genuinely could say that you exalted in the Savior of the nation? Well, that we might respond rightly to this text. I just have two final ways that I want to deal with this text's call for us to respond to this servant of the nations. And then we'll be done. So first, I want to hear this second servant song and rest in his mercy. For notice the end of verse 13. Why are we to sing and exult? Why is the creation supposed to do it? For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now students, if you're good with grammar, you notice at the end of verse 13, there's two different tenses being used. You see that? He has comforted his 
people. When did he do that? You know the story of Jesus. He dies on the cross. Before he gives up his spirit, what does he say? It is finished. This comforting work of salvation, it is done. Comfort is now given to all the world. But in a certain sense, it's also not done, is it? Because look at what the verse goes on to say. He will have compassion on his afflicted. That's at least how my ESV renders it. It's probably better rendered. He will keep on having compassion on his afflicted. Our God is not just the God of the nations. He's a God of comfort. He's a God of compassion. Maybe you're in here this morning and you feel that you have been forgotten by the Lord. Know that in this servant Savior, Jesus Christ, you are remembered. Maybe you are afflicted, going through suffering and hardship, and feel like you can't stay strong in the midst of it. Know that the Lord has compassion on you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you feel like you are falling. There's no one that's going to uphold you. But know that in Jesus Christ, this servant Savior, compassion and comfort are the two arms of strength that will allow you to stand tall. But notice something else at the end of verse 13. It's quite clear, isn't it, who gets the comfort and compassion? What does it say? His people. His afflicted. That's the question for you this morning. Are you counted as His? Do you belong to this servant, Savior? Have you tasted of His comfort? Are you rejoicing in His compassion? If you turn from your sin and and trust in Him, He who is the perfect Son of God, King from eternity past that became the man of sorrows in order that He might be the servant Savior for the nations, trusting in His work in your place, He died on the cross to take the penalty from sin. He rose again to defeat sin, Satan, and death, ascended on high, ruling and reigning. If you come to Him, yes, you have been comforted. If you have come to Him, you know His compassion. He will keep extending to you His mercy. So rest in His mercy. And then secondly, proclaim His majesty. Proclaim His majesty. And here's why I say that. There's another time in the New Testament when Isaiah chapter 49 is quoted. When it is mentioned directly, and it's in Acts chapter 13. You know, you can read this passage maybe later on today or or with a fellow church member this week and discuss what's there. You find Paul and Barnabas, you know, these two early missionaries for the church. They're in Antioch, and they're preaching Jesus Christ in all of his fullness, in all of his freedom, in all of his might, in all of his majesty, and they have great success. And as often happens when preachers start having great success, someone rises up out of the peanut gallery to critique them, to say, hey, you're not doing it right, frankly, because they're envious, at least in this passage we're told, the Jews rise up to critique them, to criticize them, to revile them even. And notice what Paul says in verse 46, or listen to it at least. Since you thrust this good news aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the nations. We are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And here's what's striking about that verse. The church of Jesus Christ, insofar as she preaches the good news of Jesus Christ, is a light for the nations. 
Christ's extension, His expansion of His missionary endeavor in the world to bring His light to all nations. There is a direct correlation between our preaching of Christ's majesty and our faithfulness and fruitfulness in His missionary labor. So we sit in here today in McKinney, Texas, one of the nations praising this crucified, buried, yet risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know in A.D. 40, there was only, as best I can tell, 1,000 Christians in the world? Fast forward 70 years after Jesus died. Best I can tell, in A.D. 100, there's about 10,000 Christians. Fast forward a century, A.D. 200, there's about 200,000 Christians. Give it another century, A.D. 300, there's somewhere between 5 to 6 million Christians in the world. Fast forward a millennium and a half to 1910. There's almost 600 million Christians in the world. Fast forward another 100 years, 2010. We're told there's something like 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Nearly one-third of the entire earth's population confessing faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? He is God's servant for the nations. As the waters cover the sea, so is this salvation going to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed comfort us in Christ and have compassion on us in Jesus Christ. Our Father, help us to see that even our very worship this morning is proof of your promise that you are going to send a servant Savior who would be a light for the nations. Uh, we pray that we would know you in the fullness of your grace and mercy. That we would see Christ in the fullness of his mercy and majesty. And that in knowing him we might be strengthened to speak of him this week. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.